the Ten Commandments. Page 122, I think, the ten words. Yes? To judge from Deuteronomy 5 uh, or from Exodus 20, the two are... versions of the Ten Commandments. First, um, principles for behavior need to be related to redemption. The Israelites were in a position in which they were um, uh, in slavery or in servitude or in bondage. Um, God says, therefore, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, the house of servants, literally. Uh, so the kind of things that God is going to expect of them are ones that are appropriate to people whom God has released from uh, servitude. But God's releasing of them doesn't simply mean that they are free to do what they like. Because God immediately goes on, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have, you, uh, you shall have no other gods but me, before me. Not, you can therefore do what you like, because I freed you, you're off on your own now, do, do as you wish, but you shall have no other gods before me, um, or besides me. It's a strange expression, it's a slightly elusive expression, but its main point is clear enough. The uh, Ten Commandments then express the power and the authority of Yahweh as the Redeemer. Uh, I brought you out of Egypt. That gives me some um, a basis, some rights for declaring how you ought to live, for declaring what principles of behavior are. Uh, thus, to put it another way, what God looks for um, is commitment, not freedom. They, they, they are being taken out of one form of service to be brought into another form of service. So, um, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, you were a servant in the la a slave in the land of Egypt, um, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Um, you're, uh, you've been brought out by Yahweh, out of that servitude, uh, but God expects there to be some commitment to God in return for that. And you're not just free to do what you like in relation to other people. Honor your father and your mother as Yahweh your God commanded you so that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. There's going to be a link with the way in which you enjoy the promised land um, and the way in which you honor one another and specifically the way in which um, grown-up children, uh, I presume this, this means, um, honor their uh, even more grown-up parents. As we got back into the Sabbath there, no, let's do that. Yeah, as we were talking about, let's, let's do that. Now let's try and pick up that Sabbath conversation. Um, yeah, go on. I don't think we're going to allow questions arising out of people's experience. That's really kind of, you know, that's very uh, postmodern. Go on, okay, go on. Don't be defensive. Woo! Yeah, and she's doing this five week intensive. Woo! Woo! So you don't get any Sabbath now, right? That's what. To make it worse, um, presumably somebody had to milk the cows. Um, I mean, you can't, the, the poor cows, you can't just not milk them on the Sabbath, can you? Because they're going to be extremely uncomfortable uh, by the end of the day. And, and, and what, uh, and so what that presumably, and presumably implies 
is that Israelites knew that there were certain things that you couldn't avoid doing um, on, on the Sabbath day, um, like milking your cows, and, um, and perhaps one would then have to accept there are certain things that uh, mums and even dads maybe can't, uh, can't avoid doing. Um, uh, you, you can't simply do nothing, but, but, the, but you can plan what you do. Make, where you've got, a, where you've got a, a room for making decisions, um, you can make decisions about what you can do. Where you, where you uh, have got no alternatives, well, you've got no alternatives. I don't say anything wiser than that, really. Anybody else got any comments on that? Mm-hmm. Mm. If it was to help someone, then maybe that wasn't work. Or if it was for personal gain, then right. maybe that right. could be considered right. work. Yeah. So maybe it was more your intention rather than actual putting forth some effort toward mm. a task. Yeah. It, maybe if we, one tries one or two other possible examples. Um, let's, let's suppose that it's this time of year, or getting a bit later. Uh, no, this time of year. Um, and the harvest is up and you, and you need actually to harvest the grain uh, and it would be really tempting to harvest the grain seven days a week not six days a week in order to make sure that you've got it all um, but but you do but there's nothing to compel you to go and do that like the baby need, needing uh, to be fed or like a person needing to be helped uh, about that it's it's are you willing to take the risk of saying no, I'm not going to harvest the grain today, even though the Canaanites around the corner are doing that. Um, but, but, but Yahweh said, uh, stop for this day, and I'm going to stop for this day and take the risk that it'll be all right. Um, yeah. Um, sorry, that, I'll come back to you, but that's from, just reminding me of something else, which is one or two people raised questions about why were these things in Deuteronomy being set? Who, was, who were the people who were tempting the people in Deuteronomy? And I just reminded me, that's just reminded me of at least part of the answer to that, which is, remember that the Israelites, you know, it talks a lot about the Israelites destroying the Canaanites, but then they didn't. The Canaanites lived next door, or in the next village, or they came to their village to, to trade, or they came to their cities to, to do trade. So the Israelites had lots of opportunity. They couldn't avoid seeing how the Canaanites did their religion, as well as seeing how the Canaanites did their farming. Uh, and so were, for that reason, were needing the kind of things said to them that are said in Deuteronomy um, because uh, they could see how other people lived and it, was, therefore, it thus wasn't so different from the kind of context in which we ourselves live, in which we, can, in which we live amongst other people who live a different way from the way that we know we're called to live. And, and so maybe at that time they had things built into their culture. A mom who's busy all the time, once a month, gets to go into mm. the red tent mm. and not have any mm. pushing And that, uh, whether or not that's that's uh, that's right, certainly they were living much more. Uh, they weren't living just uh, a mom, and if she's lucky, a husband and two kids. You know, in what together, separated from everybody else, um, uh, that for, with, doubtless with huge disadvantages and causing terrible conflicts. They were living uh, much more in the company of something more like an extended family. Um, and that, while, as I say, that must make some things tougher, it must also make some things easier. It makes possible for a woman who isn't nursing now to be able to do more uh, and, than, than a woman who is nursing can do, and next year it'll be the other way around. Um, but, but, but the way our society has developed, uh, we've um, lost loads of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't see how. Well, because, because Paul... You mean women have to nurse babies and men get circumcised? No. 
No. No, I meant the whole concept of the Sabbath and how um, it was more prominent for them in their culture than it is for us in our culture. And part of that is because it was given to the Israelites specifically. Um, they certainly didn't feel Sabbath was a burden, if that's part, partly what you mean. So, I mean, for Jews, keeping Sabbath is a huge, Sabbath is a great joy. Uh, welcoming, welcoming the Sabbath is an okay. And uh, yeah, maybe this is part of the answer, because Jewish women nowadays, I mean, Orthodox Jewish women, put in a lot of effort on kind of Thursday, Friday morning, early Friday afternoon, in order to get everything out of the way, everything possible out of the way, so that then you can simply enjoy the next 24 hours. And I suppose you can have the disadvantages of, you know, when you go on holiday, you're so tired with getting ready to go on holiday that you can't really... I mean, I can see there could be a negative side to that, but a positive side too. Okay, um, number two, back, back on my ten-word sheet. Um, principles for behavior to judge from these ten commandments involve a restoration of creation, not a flight from creation. Um, in the Exodus uh, version... The, um, the, the, the basis for keeping Sabbath is the way that God uh, created the world. The, the uh, process that God went through. In six days, Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that was in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the seventh day and consecrated it. Um, the kind of way you behave uh, re recognizes the ultimacy of Yahweh as the creator. Um, it shows some concern about the way you live your created life in the way it talks about family relationships. Uh, it shows some concern um, about created things, about your attitude to created things, um, houses and fields, oxes and oxen and donkeys. Uh, the laws that follow in Exodus and in Deuteronomy um, are concerned with ordinary life, um, and they show how God's acts of redemption uh, involve uh, a restoration of creation, not a flight from creation. Thirdly, the Decalogue, the ten words, interweave questions about God and questions about behavior. The Torah as a whole does that. Uh, the, some, somebody asked me to say some more about, uh, in, this is for Wednesday, uh, about the implication of the Torah for ethics. And what I was going to say, but now I won't because I'm going to say it now because I'm let, just letting myself, um, is that one of the implications of the Torah for ethics is that ethics is a non-subject. Sorry, Glenn. Um, and for that matter, worship is a non-subject. Sorry, Brem Central and all those guys. Uh, the, the, these are categories that we... Of course, theology is a non-subject too. Uh, the, Old, the Old Testament, that's a subject, that's Okay. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah, you're, you're not. You're really not very funny. Well, perhaps it must be that I'm not very funny. Um, because that the the Torah doesn't divide um, life up into areas like the one that's covered by worship and the one that's covered by ethics and so on. And the Ten Commandments illustrate that particularly clearly. Um, one of its implications is that there can only be theological ethics. Um, that is uh, the, the 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 basis upon which you behave has a theological basis behind it, a vision of what it means to be human. And that raises questions about how far we can make common cause with the secular world or argue with the secular world about issues like justice or marriage or abortion because there is a theology that lies behind, at least there's supposed to be a theology that lies behind what we mean by justice or marriage or abortion. Um, and it's not surprising if we, if we come to different judgments uh, about what those things involve, given the, that we would have different theologies of them. Number four, the principles for behavior uh, suggested by the Decalogue constitute a serious challenge about God to the church. You shall have no other gods before me or beside me. There's just this one God. So, for instance, how you picture this one God is really important. If there's lots of gods, you could choose a god that you like. If there's only one god, Yahweh, you can't choose the god that you like. You're stuck with him. And therefore, for us, if, there's only, if there is just the one god as there is, then how we think of that god and how we speak of that god is really important. 
Um, and that's uh, one reason why the question about gendered language is important. If we get the, give the impression that God is male, um, then uh, we have seriously distorted an understanding of God and thus our understanding of what it means to be human. Uh, and I'm sorry that we have, we, I mean I, have a hard time persuading Yal to use, to, to use non-gendered language because there's a really important point about theology and spirituality uh, involved in not seeing um, the male as the normal human being and not seeing God as male. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, the, the requirement that you uh, shouldn't make yourself uh, an image is a serious challenge um, about God to the church because lots of people like images. They like icons. Um, and icons of Jesus I can just about cope with. But just be wary about things that claim to picture God because one of the things Deuteronomy is very clear about is you can't do it. Because God is this kind of on-the-move, talking, dancing, acting kind of person. And you're bound to mislead by... A, a, the, the thing about an image is not that it's wrong because God is spirit. And uh, the, thing, the reason why it's impossible to have an image of God is that logically you can't image a person who is always active and always speaking and so on. You shall not make, make wrongful use of the name of Yahweh your God. And one of the people asked about what that really meant. Part of it, what it means, at least certainly some of the other laws are concerned um, with false uh, testimony, false witness, which doesn't just mean, uh, as I think I said earlier in the term, um, uh, that, that, you, that you must tell the truth um, when your mother quotes that at you because you've got to uh, um, tell the truth. Uh, its concern is the narrower and sharper one of the fact that if you give false testimony uh, when the court meets at the village uh, gate about what somebody has done, then they may up being killed, may end up being killed, being executed. Um, or, or they may simply end up losing their land, which might end up as the same in the end, because they've lost their livelihood. Um, and so uh, to, to swear that you're telling the truth when you're actually telling a lie um, is the most potentially dangerous thing for other people. Though it might also be the case that for us, it's very easy for us to attach God's name to things um, that aren't so much to do with God, but to attach God's name to them um, makes them sound important, put, puts some compulsion on them before people. Um, and then, as I've said already, the Sabbath one, obviously, uh, is a serious challenge to us in our workaholism and our activism. So the... Ten Commandments constitute a serious challenge about God to us. Uh, the Ten Commandments also constitute a serious challenge about behavior to the church. The great thing about them for us, I think, is that they name things um, that we don't name. So in talking about uh, treating um, the older generation properly, uh, they raised questions about abuse uh, in saying you mustn't murder, you mustn't slay, you mustn't commit homicide. The uh, King James Bible said you shall not kill, and that's too general. It's not the general word for kill that's used. It's a word for illegitimate killing that's used. But when you think of the amount of killing of Christians by Christians um, within the last decade or two in places like Bosnia and Rwanda, then you see what a big challenge the Ten Commandments lay before the Christian community. You should not commit adultery, uh, and we know how prevalent sexual immorality is in the church. You should not steal, and at least the que that raises questions about inequity uh, within the church. You should not bear false witness. That there's that uh, concern more specifically about um, uh, what you say in court, but one, one, one reads nasty cases in the press about fraud within churches and so on. And the most uh, telling, perhaps, of the commands, you shall not covet. That's the one that really got Paul. Um, and uh, it's how, how significant that at the end of these Ten Commands, it comes to something that reaches right inside you. Um, and, and how tellingly it challenges us who think that we solve something by going shopping.
the taking moments then have powerful things to say to us, uh, and they then constitute a reminder to us about being wary of people who talk about progressive revelation. That is, as if God some, said some basic things way back then, but we've grown beyond them. God, we've got some more important things to say later on. The things that God said way back at the beginning of Israel's story are at least as important as any things that God said um, later on. Um, and related to that, beware of spiritualizing them. That is, it is true that you mustn't hate somebody, as Jesus pointed out, and it is true that you mustn't lust after somebody, as Jesus pointed out. But it is also important that you shouldn't murder people and you shouldn't actually commit adultery. The, um, and you can only start the, the rarefied, um, the more rarefied um, exhortations about inner attitudes. Uh, you can only have those of the second story of the building. And if you try to build a building, a second story of a building, without there being a first story, you get into trouble, right? Uh, you always need the first story of the building. And that's what the, that's what the, the Ten Commandments are. Uh, but then number six, principles of a behavior as expressed in these ten words don't cover everything. They need rethinking, expanding in new contexts. They don't talk about nature. They don't talk about ourselves except in that coveting commandment. They don't talk about our attitude to the needy. They don't talk about men-women relationships. And in that sense, they aren't a summary of what follows. Um, there's quite a substantial tradition um, of seeing each of all the laws within the Torah as exposition of one or other of the Ten Commandments. Philo, uh, the, the Jewish teacher in Jesus' day, um, did it. Um, and Calvin, uh, who you're more likely to read, uh, did it. Calvin's commentary on Exodus to Deuteronomy um, is organized uh, under so that each of the laws um, is dealt with in accordance with which of the Ten Commandments it is a kind of subset of. And it's a really illuminating piece of work. It's very tough to find your way around, uh, but it's a really illuminating piece of work. Um, but, but, and, it, and it works quite a lot of the time, but by no means all of the time. Not everything um, in what follows in the rest of the Torah is an exposition of what the Ten Commandments say. A concern of the Ten Commandments is to safeguard the community to restrain disorder, to keep middle-aged, middle-class men in order. It, it, often it addresses them. It's the middle-aged middle, middle men who are going to decide whether, whether the servants work um, on, on the Sabbath. Um, uh, and, uh, and so it's speaking to them, but it's also challenging them, seeking to keep them in order. Um, okay, let's have uh, five minutes in which you can talk with one another again. Uh, over this subject that the lady in front of me said, it always takes an hour to discuss these five-minute subjects. No, it doesn't take an hour. It takes a lifetime. Um, so don't worry about it. Just talk about it for five minutes. Which of these Ten Commandments do you think is most important theologically for us? Which do you think is most important behaviorally? Which do you think um, are uh, the most important issues they don't cover? If you want to try working with that old uh, question of What's the 11th commandment? Then uh, you can do that. Talk to one another for a few minutes. Anybody got any good 11th commandments? Only your spouse. Okay. Any other good 11th commandments? The ones I know are, do not get found out. <laughs> Sorry, that's the one you might, there's another one like, I forgot what the other one like that is. But it's good to have a serious one. Any other 11th commandments? Okay. Um, anything else about that anybody wants to uh, raise? Okay, to De Deuteronomy. And now I think I'm on page 121, and I think if there it says Deuteronomy, place, shape, emphases. Yes? First, the place of Deuteronomy. Um, 
the whole of Genesis to Kings is, is, one, is this one huge story, uh, which after the uh, opening takes uh, Israel's ancestors from Babylon uh, to the Promised Land, um, and then in the second half takes them eventually back into the Promised Land, back, back, in, back into Babylon from the Promised Land. There's an outline of the story as a whole. Um, beginnings, promise, escape from Egypt, meeting with God at Sinai, wanderings in the wilderness, being on the edge of the promised land, Deuteronomy being told how to live in the land, Joshua getting into the land, judges people doing what's right in their own eyes, Saul's kingship, David's kingship, the height of the achievement, Solomon and the seat of downfall, the demise of an empire. Now, Deuteronomy stands roughly at the center of that as I've uh, listed those different parts of Genesis 2 Kings uh, in columns there. It stands at the end of the Pentateuch and the beginning of the Deuteronomistic history. Well, you know about the Pentateuch because we've been talking about that for five weeks, so I'm just going to assume you know what the Pentateuch is. Uh, But some of you can be forgiven for not knowing what the Deuteronomistic history is. Um, some of you will find that out next week. That reminds me, yes, one of the questions, I, does anybody who's doing profits remember what the enrollment key was? <laughs> Miraculous? No, it wasn't. It was either messen- I thought it was either messengers or mysterious. I'm sorry? Uh, the capital M is, it's, it's sensitive, is it? Right, that's a very, this has been a great evening for me to find that out. Thank you very much. It's mysterious. The, um, the enrollment key is mysterious. When I said that, that's why I thought about changing it to messengers, because I thought that's going to get me into trouble. And then I think I forgot to. So, okay. Those of you to whom that was an entire mystery, don't worry. It's been a great blessing to me the last one minute has been. Um, how did we get into that, Ben? Oh, yes, due to mystic history, yeah. Okay. Uh, but, but, while, but while I'm sidetracking myself, um, here's the other sidetrack. I've got some scones, if any of you are going to come and eat them tonight. Is anybody going to come and eat scones tonight? Yes, great, okay, good. Uh, I have tea, I have scones, we shall eat them and drink them. Uh, now, back to the digital mystic history. You see, I, don't, I can get back sometimes to where I was. Um, the digital mystic history is the standard critical uh, dis- um, description, term to describe the story that, that tells you how the Israelites, uh, that tells you about the Israelites from, from Joshua's day through to the exile, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Introduced by the book of Deuteronomy, and it's called the Deuteronomistic History because when the story from Joshua, Judges, Samuel, through Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings is giving you an evaluation of what went on, the principles for its evaluation come from Deuteronomy. Uh, it looks as if the whole thing was written by some guys who either were the guys who wrote Deuteronomy or who were sympathetic, who, who agreed with, who liked Deuteronomy, who thought Deuteronomy had got it. So it's a Deuteronomistic history. Deuteronomy thus stands at the hinge, at the center of this entire work from Genesis to Kings. It's the end of the Torah, uh, and it's also, but it's also, also the beginning uh, of um, Deuteronomy to Kings or Joshua to Kings which in Jewish thinking is the former prophets, but as I say, in scholarly parlance is the Deuteronomistic history. Deuteronomy is the center of Genesis to Kings, not just in a purely um, literal sense, but, but, but it is the hinge of the whole thing. It's the climax of the story from, uh, of, of Israel, before Israel got into the land, the climax of the Pentateuch. But it's also the beginning uh, of the story that takes you from Israel's going into the land to um, the uh, end of the period of the monarchy with the, with the exile. It couldn't be more important um, as the center of, of this huge story that runs from Genesis to Kings. It's the hinge, it's the fulcrum of the whole thing. How to live in the land. The climax of where we've been, but also the book that looks forward to where we're going. Paragraph two on this sheet, um, it's the great covenantal book. Now, uh, 
in one of the bits of um, lecture that I played you at the, uh, of Walter Brueggemann's the other day, uh, he referred to, I think he probably used the expression, didn't he, pan-covenantalism or some such expression. Um, he said something like, I used to be a pan-covenantalist, but I'm not now, I've learned. Uh, covenant has been something which uh, has sometimes been in big fashion um, in the way that people have talked about the Old Testament. And as happens with fashions in theology, it thus becomes more important than it really is. And so then you get a reaction uh, against the idea, for instance, of covenant being really important. Covenant is an important motif running through the Pentateuch, though uh, not as important as sometimes both systematic theologians and Old Testament scholars have talked. You can structure the story that we've been looking at uh, in the Pentateuch on the basis of the covenant. The, the pre-covenant stage, um, at the time before the flood when there wasn't a covenant, you didn't need one uh, at creation because the relationships were okay. A covenant set up with Noah, you need a covenant now because of the mess the world has got into. A covenant with Abraham. Some covenant making at Sinai. Uh, but the uh, most prominent focus, uh, the, the, the book that most prom gives most prominent focus to covenant uh, is Deuteronomy. Um, and it expands the significance of covenant in a distinctive way. Uh, it does what it does because it uses the way in which the notion of covenant was used politically uh, in the Middle East. As I've put on the sheet, in the Middle East and ancient times, relationships between one of the big powers, say the Assyrians, and one of the little powers, say Judah, were often formulated as a treaty with fixed components. And in Hebrew, uh, the word berit, which is the word uh, for uh, a covenant, uh, is also the word for a treaty or a contract. Um, theologically, I've probably implied before, it's really important that you uh, make a distinction between covenants and contracts. Uh, but the Israelites didn't do so in terms of their language. They, they used the same word uh, for both of these. But what that facilitated was their being able to use the way that a berit in the political context worked in order to expound how a berit worked uh, between God and people. So as I put on the sheet, uh, Israel took this, uh, the formulating of relationships between big powers and little powers, as a way of understanding their own covenant relationship with God. Um, and it's Deuteronomy that most systematically works out the implications of that. There were standard features um, in a treaty document between a big power and a little power, uh, and those then become the features that appear in Deuteronomy and help you to see why Deuteronomy um, works the way it does. First, it was a standard thing in a treaty that the um, preamble to the treaty reviewed what the relationship between the power these these uh, countries had been uh, in the recent past um, and not least emphasizing uh, how nice uh, the big power had been to the little power and the little power is not going to disagree is it um, so Deuteronomy begins by uh, reviewing what's been going on between God and Israel over the past generation and that's what occupies chapters one to three then a treaty would go on to lay down the basic expectations that the big power had of the little power. Uh, the key one was, the key expectation was that of loyalty. That is, you have to be loyal to me. Uh, if you, you, you are uh, in treaty relationship, you Judeans are in treaty relationship with us Assyrians. Therefore, you Judeans are, are not allowed to go and make a treaty on the side with the Egyptians, who are our enemies. You're, in, you're committed to being loyal to us. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapters 4 to 11, uh, you get God, as it were, as the big power, uh, laying down the basic expectations that God has of uh, Israel with loyalty to Yahweh being key to that. Then in a treaty, you'd get some examples of some particular ways in which the 
uh, relationship was going to work out and some particular expectations that the big bear had of the little power. And you get that in Deuteronomy uh, in chapters 12 to 26. Though th this is where um, the, the, the similarity between a treaty and Deuteronomy gets stretched. It doesn't break down, but it does get, does get stretched. And this is particularly the point that I uh, take from Gordon Wenham, who's, who I've referred to in the, um, in the paragraph just above the outline here. Because uh, Gordon Wenham points out how out of proportion is Deuteronomy 12 to 26 uh, in relation to the form of a treaty. Uh, and that Deuteronomy 12 to 26 is much more like um, a version of one of those law codes like Hammurabi's law code that you uh, read a week or two ago. So that what you end up with in Deuteronomy is actually something of a kind of cross between a treaty and a law code or a combination of a treaty and a law code. These were separate in the secular world, uh, but in this religious world of Israel, they were brought together, brought into combination with each other. Uh, when uh, following on the detailed expectations in chapters 12 to 26, you get some regulations for the formalizing of the relationship. That's what you'd get um, in a treaty, uh, likewise. Um, and following that, you get some promises and some warnings uh, about the good things that will follow if the little power uh, does what it's supposed to do, as in terms of the treaty, uh, and also the trouble that will follow if it dares do anything different. Um, there were several people made in offered interesting remarks or asked questions about the curses and the blessings, uh, which maybe I can say something about at this point. I think some people thought it was significant, it must be significant which tribes were uttering blessings and which were uttering curses, as if they only um, applied to some of the tribes. That isn't how it works. Uh, it's simply, that's the way the drama uh, works. That is, all, it's Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph and Benjamin who utter the courses, the, the blessings standing on one mountain and Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan and Naphtali utter the curses um, on the other side, on the, mount, the opposite mountain. Uh, that, that's not saying that, six, that those six tribes are going to uh, experience the blessings and the other six are going to experience the curses. That's simply the way the kind of drama um, is, uh, is working in the reading out of them. Somebody sharply pointed out that um, there was quite an overlap between the, ten, between the curses and the Ten Commandments. Um, somebody asked, why we make so much more fuss of the Ten Commandments than we do of the curses? Um, and I think that it's, uh, at one level at least, it's easy to explain that. That is because it, both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are put up the front of the exposition of God's expectations. Um, and so the Pentateuch itself, the Torah itself, is inviting you to take the Ten Commandments really seriously. Why are these particular things cursed? Well, quite a number of them, at least, um, are the kind of thing that you can that that nobody might necessarily know about, uh, and and so the um, curses warn you about doing things that you think you get away with in secret uh, that actually you won't get away with because God can see. So the basic shape of the um, of Deuteronomy follows that uh, of a treaty relationship between a big power and a little power. Um, and it illustrates a different, a different way in which God can take things out of a culture and use them to uh, illustrate what's going on theologically. Third, the emphases of Deuteronomy. Um, and it has some significant theological emphases and some significant ethical emphases. Uh, its significant theological emphases are simply two. It would be nice in a way to think of some more. There are only two. That's a bit pathetic. Um, but actually it's very significant that there are two, or at least that there are these two, because they do express the two-sided nature of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. In a sense, all Deuteronomy wants to say to you is, have, or, or, or all God wants to say to you is, you are my people, I am your God. Um, and the book as a whole is a gargantuan working out 
uh, of the implications of that. It's then worth noting the um, linkage between Deuteronomy expounding the relationship between God and Israel in those terms, you are my people and I am your God, and things that a couple of the prophets say. Hosea is told by God um, that one of his children is to be called not my people, lo ami. Because, says God, you are not my people and I am not your God. That's Hosea chapter 1 verse 9. It's not God's last word because Hosea talks about the way in which um, says in chapter 2 verse 1, say to your brother, Ami, my people. Not God's people, not, not my people is not God's last word, but it is um, a danger, a warning that hangs over the people in Hosea's day. And indeed that came about in the sense that, uh, the, that Ephraim, the northern people, um, were uh, overwhelmed by the Assyrians um, and taken off, transported to Assyria, and in effect, more or less, northern Israel's life came to an end. The language is then taken up again, reappears again in the context of Judah's exile. Judah has the same experience. Judah is taken off into exile. Um, and that, but then in Isaiah 40, there comes a message to the people in exile that goes like this. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Uh, and what Isaiah 40 is saying, in effect, is the relationship that Deuteronomy promised and described uh, and which whose imperiling Hosea reported um, is being restored. The promise that Hosea made that God would again say, my people, God is saying. For a generation, while the Israelites have been in exile, God has been saying, not my people. But uh, the, the good news message at the end of the exile in Isaiah 40 is, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. You are my people, uh, I am your God. The, the twin ethical emphases, which in a way, um, well, uh, Rolf Rendtorf, who is a big deal Old Testament guy, uh, who wrote a book called uh, The Covenant Formulary, Well, that, that's his term for this very phrase. Um, I, am your, I am your God, you are my people. You are my people, I am your God. Uh, that's, as far as he's concerned, a, a summary of what covenant is about. Then the ethical emphases of Deuteronomy, of which um, I think there are six. First, justice. What other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this entire law that I am setting before you today? Ask Moses in chapter 4. Uh, and then in chapter 9, um, Deuteronomy describes uh, some examples of the way in which justice is supposed to walk, work, work out. Um, for instance, in the setting apart of three cities that people could go to if they are being accused of, run to, if they're being accused of homicide. Somebody in their posting said, uh, they must have had a lot of trouble with homicide if they needed three cities for people to run to. <laughs> um, to which my answer is, well, yeah, they're normal. They're, okay. I mean, how many people have been, kill, been killed today in Los Angeles? I bet it's more than one. Um, but, but the point isn't the number, it's the geography. That is, um, the, the three cities are spread about in the country. So that somebody who is accused, um, or maybe who has killed somebody, and who is in danger of being lynched, um, can can get to somewhere that's somewhere that's not too far away, rather than having to run 300 miles or something. Um, a concern about justice, so that uh, it isn't the case, for instance, uh, that that people that somebody who um, killed somebody accidentally um, gets lynched um, before there can be any proper 
consideration um, of the rights and wrongs of what had, ha- what had happened. Some other concerns in that chapter about um, uh, a single witness not being enough to convince, convict a person of any crime. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. And it's been said that the standards of proof in these laws uh, are much more rigorous than anything that we have in a Western uh, nation now. The chances of us falsely um, finding somebody guilty um, by mistake uh, are much greater on our rules than they are under Deuteronomy's rules. Uh, Second ethical concern is concern for the needy. Um, The the use of the tithes in that connection I've talked about uh, and the... uh, chapter about the remission of debts and about how servitude works uh, you've looked at for today. And there was something I was going to say about that, but I've forgotten what it is. I might come back and look at the posting, look at my list from the postings and might see then what it is. Oh yes, it's, I know, it's the business about... Um, the kind of contradiction of uh, there'll be nobody in need among you, but when there are needy people among you, this is what to do about it. Now, partly of what's going on there is simply that's, that's God speaking simultaneously or in successive verses from the top of the mountain but from the bottom of the mountain. There needn't be any poor among you. Uh, life, I will make sure life works out. Um, but okay, I know there's going to be poor amongst you, so here's some rules to... Uh, uh, to, to, to cope with that, to handle that. The other thing about it is that um, uh, th- there won't be people in need among you if you live in the right kind of way with one another, um, is the presupposition of the chapter. Third concern uh, in Deuteronomy, third ethical concern, is brotherhood. Uh, that This doesn't come out very clearly in the NRSV or the TNIV, it's the downside to avoiding gendered language. Uh, because in order to avoid referring to brothers, um, we, the NRSV it uses words like members of your community um, and thereby obscures the theological principle that Deuteronomy is putting forward, which is that you look at other members of the community as members of your family. It's a wondrously inviting and challenging um, vision for the, way, for the way that we look um, at the community. The community is a family. Um, and so Deuteronomy keeps, Deuteronomy 15 keeps emphasizing that this person who's in need and who might end up in servitude uh, and who needs your um, mercy is your brother. It's your brother. It's your brother. You wouldn't, you wouldn't treat your brother in uh, a bad way, would you? Well, maybe not. Mm. But the, the assumption here is that relationships between the family, where people might take for granted the appropriateness of, for instance, not lending to one another on a basis of interest, um, that, that vision, that way in which things work in the family, you look at the whole community that way. And Deuteronomy applies that vision also to the question uh, of having uh, a king. Okay, supposing you say you want a king like everybody else. Well, just remember, Deuteronomy 17 emphasizes several times, that your king is just one amongst brothers. It's a brother that you set up as a king. He mustn't set himself up as somebody really important. Uh, It's important that, that he keeps reading this Torah. Uh, is to have a copy of this Torah written for him, it says in Deuteronomy 17. He's to keep it all the time and keep reading it and not exalting himself above, above, above his brothers. Make sure that the person who rules you never loses an awareness uh, of there being just a brother amongst brothers. Sixth concern of Deuteronomy is womanhood. Uh, Deuteronomy keeps adding to, when it picks up uh, regulations, say, out of Exodus, it keeps adding reference to the women. Um, so, in, again, in Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, 
If a member of your community is sold to you to be a servant, Deuteronomy adds, whether it's a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, women and men to be treated the same way. Verse 17, um, if, the, if, if a man wants to stay on and be a permanent servant, then that applies to a woman as well, says the second half of Deuteronomy 15, verse 17. There's a concern about womanhood in the um, regulations directly concerned uh, with women in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Um, for instance, uh, about... Um, a, a, a man who has two wives not being allowed um, to, uh, dis- to differentiate in the way he treats the children of one that he's more fond of from the way he treats the children of one that he's less fond of. Um, there's a concern with women in the way in that regulation about the divorce certificate um, that, that, that a woman has been thrown out by her husband for some trivial reason needs to have some kind of protection needs to have a document that establishes what her status is. Um, and the significance of that is still, that's still around today. It's still um, uh, a significant thing for more Orthodox Jews that a woman who's divorced should have a get, um, a document that establishes what her status is. Uh, and there's still some resistance on that part sometimes by, uh, by Jewish men. Uh, lots of verses in Deuteronomy where, it talk, where, where Exodus say would talk about husbands or sons or fathers, and Deuteronomy will add uh, mothers and daughters um, and wives. Not something that Exodus meant to include, but something that Deuteronomy um, feels the need to make specific. So why is there this difference between the Deuteronomy and the Exodus laws, one of you asked in your posting? Now, partly there is difference because uh, of social contexts. Uh, And this might be an example, for instance, if Deuteronomy reflects uh, more of um, an urban uh, context, um, then uh, there may well be more need to make explicit that what it says applies to women and not just to men, because urban society, urbanization makes that more necessary. In general, uh, the issues are going to arise, uh, arise in an urban context that don't arise. Um, in a country context, or they're going to arise in a different form. Uh, and it's because circumstances change that the uh, regulations in, say, Deuteronomy over Exodus um, need to be made more specific or tweaked in a new sort of way. So that what Exodus said, uh, what, God's, what, what, what Exodus said in its day was God's word for that day. What Deuteronomy says in its day is God's word for that day. Uh, Family order. Uh, Take care and watch yourselves closely so as neither to forget the things that your eyes have seen nor to let them slip from your mind all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. That exhortation to um, make the family the place uh, of learning again. Honor your father and your mother. Uh, keep, keep, keep that aspect of order of the family. Uh, rules in Deuteronomy 22 um, uh, about the false charges laid by uh, a man uh, in relation to uh, a woman he's married whom he now claims wasn't a virgin when he married her. Um, the, the rule, again, about, uh, about divorce. Various ways in which Deuteronomy seeks to safeguard the order of the family. And then a final eth- interesting ethical concern of Deuteronomy is happiness. Now, here's a law book. Uh, but the verb to be happy, to rejoice, comes... Um, it, it, uh, Deuteronomy is with Psalms and Proverbs in the frequency with which it talks about happiness. Now, not surprisingly that Psalms talks quite a lot about joy. Uh, Maybe interesting, certainly, that Proverbs does. Really interesting that this law book talks so much about joy. Um, It emphasizes the the joy of the celebration of a festival um, in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Um, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. 
you together with your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves. See, it's uh, doing that thing of, of bringing in both uh, sexes. And the Levites who uh, reside in your towns. Uh, you're all to have a great time at this festival together. Chapter 24, verse 5, a very neat law. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be charged with any related duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with the wife whom he has married. Isn't that nice? <laughs> they didn't apply that to people going to Iraq, I don't think. Um, and Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 12, when you've finished paying the tithe of your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, giving it to the Levites, the aliens, the orphans, and the widows, so that they may eat their fill within your towns. See, these guys, they're not just supposed to have just a kind of old crust. They want, Deuteronomy wants them to eat their fill. Happiness. There, the emphasis, there are some key emphases of Deuteronomy then when you compare Deuteronomy with the other laws. Um, and that takes me into uh, where it says at the bottom there, number four, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the similarities and the differences. See page 129. So, see page 129, where it says at the top, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the similarities and the differences. Because somebody said to me at the end of this course last year or the year before, I, I don't get the similarities and the differences between these different books. So here's my attempt to uh, give you a kind of quick guide to um, their, um, the nature of, the, of these books. First, Exodus. Uh, the framework of Exodus is a narrative. It's a story. Exodus is the story of how Yahweh got Israel from servanthood in Egypt to servanthood at Sinai, from being servants of Pharaoh to being servants of God. It's a story that talks about the renegotiating of the covenant. Uh, and it tells about the rebuilding of, the, of the, world, the building of the sanctuary in the wilderness. Set in the context of that framework um, are the, uh, the deca are sets of instructions, the Decalogue, which are the basics about how to respond to, to God's grace, and then some detailed instructions uh, about how to live in a village-based society, the kind of society you've got in the period of the judges, and some detailed instructions about how to build a portable sanctuary. That's Exodus. Leviticus is kind of an inverted version of that because the framework of Leviticus is instructions, not story. Um, instructions on how to worship and how to live for God in a Jerusalem context, I suggest, in temple context. So Leviticus tells you how to offer sacrifices, how to stay pure and avoid taboo, how to be holy. The kind of things that, that a priestly theologian would want to emphasize. Um, in, into the context of the, into the framework of instructions, there's one bit of narrative in Leviticus that tells you how the priests uh, were ordained and how things went wrong, but then how God puts things right. It's all got a priestly focus, though. Numbers, we're back to a narrative framework because this is, Numbers is, is the story of how Yahweh got uh, Israel from Sinai to the edge of the Promised Land, which means you can imagine Israelites reading it in the context of exile where they are themselves, maybe, on the edge of the Promised Land. They'd like to think on the edge of the Promised Land. Um, maybe God can take them into the land in the way that um, God was about to take the Israelites in the land, to the land in the, in the book of um, Numbers. The narrative is about preparations to set off from Sinai, the journey towards Canaan that took 40 years rather than just a few days, and then preparations for finally entering Canaan. So the, narrative, the, fra the, the, na the framework of Numbers is a narrative inserted into the narrative are some miscellaneous instructions that are spread through these stories, ones that are somewhat worrying because they're always talking about death. Finally, Deuteronomy. The framework of Deuteronomy is that it's Moses' last sermon. 
It's about how to worship and how to live for God in an urban context. Maybe it's Jerusalem in the 7th century. It's about how to work out a covenant relationship. It's about how to make Yahweh Lord. It's the kind of things that lay theologians would want to emphasize, as opposed to priestly theologians. It's got a kind of narrative um, edge to it. It's Israel preparing to enter the land, but in itself, its framework is that of a sermon. Don't ever preach a sermon this long. Uh, anybody want to ask anything about that or say anything? Okay, finally, page one, two, three, where it says at the top, uh, the shape of theology and ethics in the Torah and the prophets. Um, and I'll start from, uh, again, you need the print view of this because there are two triangles in the middle. Um, I'm going to start from the top of those two triangles. Uh, Exodus chapter 34. Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Uh, who is Yahweh? Well, Yahweh is this God who's got these two sides to his character. Uh, the majority side, the side that gets more prominence, is the side that's merciful and gracious and uh, keeping steadfast love and so on. But on the other side, Yahweh is somebody you can't mess with not somebody who clears the guilty. Uh, now, that the same theology is implicit in the prophets. Yahweh is the holy God. Isaiah spells out Yahweh's holiness in terms of uh, Yahweh bringing judgment upon the people. Yahweh shows himself holy by his acting in judgment. Uh, in Hosea, in Hosea chapter 11, makes the opposite point. I'm going to punish you, Lot, says um, Yahweh uh, in Hosea chapter 11. But how could I do that? I can't cast you off because I'm God. I'm the Holy One. Beautiful contrast between Isaiah and, and, and Hosea, both of them saying important things about God. I'm the Holy One, therefore I've got to act in judgment, says Isaiah in keeping with the second part of the Exodus passage. I'm the Holy One, therefore I've got to have mercy on you, says Hosea, in keeping with the first part of the Exodus passage. God is the one who is holy. In, in, the, in Exodus uh, and, and in the prophets then, God is the one who is holy, and whose holiness spells itself out on, in one side in being um, committed and compassionate, and on the other side uh, in being prepared to be tough. Um, and taking action against wrong. Now, says God in Leviticus 19, you be holy as I am holy. And the, what the, uh, the bottom triangle is, is designed to suggest is that there is an equivalence in the response that Israel is expected to show to God, uh, to God's revelation of himself. God is to be holy... Uh, and, and that Micah and Micah chapter six verse eight um, sums up the the way in which the Israel triangle works, as Exodus thirty four sums up the way the Yahweh triangle works. The Micah triangle is what does the Lord what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And I want to suggest that walking humbly with your God, being diffident, not thinking you know everything, not thinking you are everything, that's the appropriate response to holiness. Doing justice and loving kindness are the appropriate responses to God's uh, having a tough side and God's having a committed and loving and merciful side. So in response to who God is, uh, we, sh we express 
the holiness that we, uh, with which we are due to mirror God by being on the one hand active for what's right and on the other hand uh, being uh, friendly, faithful, gracious, committed, forgiving in the way that God also is. The shape of theology and ethics in the Torah and the prophets assumes that God's character is something to be mirrored in our character. And it's 10 to 9 and I'm going to climb on my bicycle and go and make tea. And I'll see some of you to come and eat these scones. And the rest of you, I'll see on Wednesday. And then we're all done, and won't that be good? Except that I have to come back next week. And some of you do. <laughs>